as we turn to the book of Daniel and consider the message of the book of Daniel, we can't help thinking about what it would be like to know the future. The passage of scripture we've just read in Daniel chapter 2 is a revelation to Daniel and to King Nebuchadnezzar of what is going to happen in the future. And the idea of knowing the future is tantalizing, isn't it? I mean, it's tempting to want to know what is going to happen before it happens. What, for example, would you do if you knew for certain that you would live to a ripe old age, that you'd have plenty of money, your family would be intact, your health would be in good shape? If you knew that was your future, what would you do? Would you retire earlier? Would you retire later? Would you be less stressed, less anxious? Would you be more at peace if you knew all those things? What about if on the other hand, you knew some things that weren't so good? What what if you had known in 2015 the basic outline of what was gonna happen in 2020? What if you had known five years in advance there would be a new virus that would shut down basically the whole world and everybody would have to stay at home and people would die and people would be sick and people would be scared and and at first no one would know what to do. Would you want to live with that knowledge for five years, waiting for it to happen, not being able to do anything to change it? Knowing the future is sort of a two-edged sword. And if you know good things are coming, That might be nice to know, right? That might kind of help free you up a little bit. But if you know bad things are coming and you can't do anything about it, what would that do to you? What what extra weight would that add? Well, thinking about the future in those terms helps us look at Daniel chapter 2, both from the perspective of Nebuchadnezzar and from the perspective of Daniel. Remember, Daniel is an exile from Judah. He's a Jew, and he's an exile in Babylon. And he's been trained up to serve the king of Babylon, who is, in essence, his enemy. Right? The Babylonians have brought Daniel by force to live in their kingdom and to serve their king. And Nebuchadnezzar has this dream that God gives him that reveals to Nebuchadnezzar some things that Nebuchadnezzar doesn't really want to hear. It's not good news for Nebuchadnezzar, but it is good news for Daniel. God reveals the same future, the same mystery to both men, but it means different things to both of them. I mean, the dream has one meaning, right? But it's bad news for Nebuchadnezzar, and it's good news for Daniel. Keep that double-edged sword idea about the future in mind as we walk through this passage together about the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Now, many of us have had the experience, right, of waking up from a dream that was troubling, right? You would get up in the morning and you'd think, oh man, I don't even, I don't even want to think about that, right? And it, but all it takes usually is, you know, maybe some coffee and some sunlight and then the dream is behind you. You're, you're good and you're ready to face the day. Not so Nebuchadnezzar. This dream has apparently so profoundly troubled him that he cannot be at ease until he knows what the dream means. I suspect that Nebuchadnezzar has at least an inkling 
of what this dream is about. I, I think he suspects that it's not good news for him. And so he wants to know what this distressing dream is about. The good news is Nebuchadnezzar has men in his kingdom who this is part of their job. This is what they do. They interpret things. They explain things. They are the wise men, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the people who are supposed to resolve and explain mysteries. And so Nebuchadnezzar summons these men to him, and he says to them, I want you to tell me my dream and what it means. And if you don't, I'm going to destroy you. Right? So, no pressure. Right? And these wise men realize uh, that the king is serious. He doesn't just mean, I want you to tell me the interpretation of the dream. He wants them to tell him the dream itself. And the reason why he says this is because he knows what you and I know, and that is that it's very possible, in fact, it's easy for some people to make up a compelling interpretation of a dream that they really know nothing about. We know people are, are duped by these kinds of things all the time. There are people who make a living convincing people they know things they really don't. And so Nebuchadnezzar knows this, and as a king, right, he knows that the people around him, most of them are likely to just tell him whatever they think he wants to hear so that they don't get torn limb from limb and have their houses burned down, right? So he says in verse 9, if you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. And, and here's why he's doing it this way. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. In other words, he's saying, I know you're just going to you're going to lie to me. You're going to tell me what I want to hear. You're just biding your time. I don't want to hear your made up interpretation. That is what you think I want it to be. I want the real interpretation. And so the only way I can be sure that you give me the real interpretation is if you tell me the dream too. Now, they start to panic, understandably, because they know they can't do this. They, they've you know, made their careers out of claiming that they can explain things that nobody else can explain, but this they know they cannot do. The stakes are too high, and the request is impossible. So they say in verse 10, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. In other words, there's nobody on earth who can do what you're asking, king. No king has ever asked anybody to do this, and nobody can do this. Only the gods can do this kind of thing, and they're not here. That's what they're saying. Now, they're right on one count. Only the gods can make known this interpretation, except for there aren't gods. There's just one god, and only he can reveal the king's dream. That is part of why Daniel is here. Remember we saw last time that the Lord was the one who gave the king of Judah and the vessels of the temple and so on into the hands of the Babylonians. The exile was not 
Babylon's gods defeating the God of Israel. It was the God of Israel handing over his people in judgment to the Babylonians because they had sinned against him, they committed idolatry, they'd broken the covenant. And so it was by God's hand and God's design that Daniel and his friends went into exile in Babylon. And God has placed Daniel in the king's court, and we saw in chapter 1 that God had given Daniel the ability to interpret and understand visions and dreams. So it just so happens that there's a man in Nebuchadnezzar's court who can interpret this dream if God so wills it. And of course, he does. As the king sends out the command for all these men, these wise men of Babylon, to be put to death because they can't do what the king wants them to do, one of the men that they come to round up is Daniel. And Daniel, through asking careful questions, finds out what's going on, what's the big hurry, why is all this happening? And uh, Arioch, the king's servant, explains to Daniel what's going on. And Daniel says, time out. Give me a chance. Let me have an audience with the king. I can tell him what the dream is and what the interpretation is. So Daniel gets an audience with the king. And he gathers his friends together. And he says, guys, we've got to pray. We've got to ask God for mercy. This is not something Daniel thinks he can do on his own. Right? He knows that he needs God to reveal this to him. So in verse 17, he gathers his friends. Verse 18, it says, he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed. As If we're not going to die, God has to make this known to us. We need his help. We need his mercy. So they pray and ask for God to reveal this mystery. And then, of course, he does. Verse 19 says, The mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. And Daniel responds in verses 20 to 23 with this prayer of praise, this blessing of God, because God has once again shown to Daniel, that he is the one true and living God. He is the one who is able to explain things, to make things known. And so he says, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. God is all powerful. God is all knowing. He is the one who is wise. And in verse 21, he says, He changes times and seasons, He removes kings and sets up kings. You can tell right there. Daniel knows what the dream is about. It's about the removal and setting up of kings. It's about the changing of times and seasons. And Daniel confesses and acknowledges and praises God for the fact that God is the one who puts men in charge and then who removes them and puts somebody else in charge. Remember, Daniel is in exile in Babylon. He is having to serve under a foreign king. But Daniel remembers and Daniel knows and Daniel confesses that it's God who put Nebuchadnezzar on the throne. And it's God who will put the next king on the throne and remove 
Nebuchadnezzar. And it's God who will put the next king on the throne after him. That God is the one who is in charge. Though it looks to the rest of the world like Israel's God has been defeated and the God of Babylon is more powerful, Daniel knows that the God of Israel, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, is the one who put the God of uh, the, the king of Babylon on the throne and who will one day take him down. Daniel's not worried. Daniel knows who's in charge. He also says in verse 21 that God gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Daniel's a wise man. Daniel understands a lot of things. Throughout the book of Daniel, he's going to explain to people a lot of things. But Daniel knows that wisdom, that understanding does not come from him. It comes from God. God, verse 22, is the one who reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness. Verse 23 says, To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. Daniel does not want us or anybody else to have any confusion about where this revelation comes from. It comes not from Daniel. It comes from God. Daniel is just the vessel. So, Daniel gets an opportunity to go before the king. He now knows the king's dream and its interpretation. And so he's brought before the king. And the king asks him, verse 26, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Now, if we were watching this in a movie, you could just imagine the dramatic pause here, right? Because not only is Daniel's life on the line and his friends' lives on the line, but all the wise men of Babylon stand to be destroyed if Daniel cannot give a good answer to the king. And so Daniel says in verse 27, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. That's the same thing the other guys said, right? Nobody can do this. But, he says, verse 28, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. So Daniel says, look, I... Nobody, none of your wise men could do it. I couldn't do it. But God can do it. And God has made known to you what is going to take place in the future. Your dream, Nebuchadnezzar, is a vision from God about what is coming. And so Daniel begins to explain to the king what his dream was in verse 31. Right? He says, here's what you dreamed. Now, You can't fake this stuff, right? Because Nebuchadnezzar knows what he dreamed. Nobody else knows what he dreamed except God. And God has made known to Daniel what Nebuchadnezzar dreamed so he can tell Nebuchadnezzar the dream. And here's the dream. He saw what Daniel calls a uh, terrifying, uh, or it's a, a vision of a statue that was frightening in appearance. Right? This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. So you saw this huge, terrifying statue, and here's what it looked like. 
The head was of gold. The chest and arms were of silver. The torso and the thighs were of bronze. And then the legs were of iron and the feet of a mixture of iron and clay. And then you saw a stone that was not cut out by any human hand. And this stone struck that image on the feet. And the image broke the whole thing, top to bottom, not just the part that the stone struck, but the whole thing was broken into pieces and became like chaff. It just blows away. There was nothing left of any of that statue. But that stone that had struck the mountain, or that struck the image, it became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. That's the dream. Now, what is that dream? mean? Daniel begins to interpret the dream in verse 36. He says, this was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, he says in verse 37, the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and so on. In other words, you're a great king. You rule over basically all the known world. You, he says at the end of verse 38, you are the head of gold. Now, again, I suspect that Nebuchadnezzar figured as much. Uh, perhaps the image even looked like him, right? Perhaps the image in his dream had Nebuchadnezzar's face. Maybe that was why he was so troubled. This clearly has something to do with me, and whatever it is that has to do with me is going to get destroyed. I need to know what's happening, what this is about. So Daniel says, you're the head of gold. Right? That's, that's the Babylonian empire is the head of gold. But then he says, after you is going to come an inferior kingdom, right? That's the one made of silver, silver less valuable than gold, an inferior kingdom. That's the kingdom that comes after you. And then there's going to be another one, he says, a third kingdom in verse 39 of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And then verse 40, there shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron. So he says, the the image that you saw made of the four different metals represent four different kingdoms or four different empires. You're at the head. That's the Babylonian empire. And then uh, Daniel doesn't name the empires that come after Nebuchadnezzar, but we have the the, uh, hindsight of history, right? We know what these empires are. The silver Empire is the Medo-Persian Empire, which will come to power after Babylon and overtake the Babylonian Empire. I think we'll even see that later in the book of Daniel. Um, Then after the Medo-Persian Empire comes the Greeks, right? Think of Alexander the Great and how uh, vast that empire was. That's the the, uh, Bronze Empire, the Greek Empire. And then the, the fourth empire that he mentions, the empire characterized by iron and then by the mixture of iron and clay, that is the Roman Empire, right? And it doesn't take much imagination uh, to see that Daniel is talking about the Roman Empire when he says in verse 40, there shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. I mean, that... Sounds like Rome, right? A brutal empire that crushed everything in its path. Later he says um, that the the feet 
of iron and clay. Some people suspect that the, the feet of iron and clay are a fifth kingdom, but Daniel doesn't say there's a fifth kingdom. He just mentions the third and the fourth. Right? So I think it's just part of uh, this fourth kingdom, the, the, uh, the Roman Empire, is mixed with, uh, it's iron mixed with clay. And he, he says something about, uh, in verse 43, they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. Um, nobody seems to really know what that means, but I think most scholars suspect that has to do with you know, making royal alliances through marriages to try to strengthen their empire, and it, it backfired on them. But again, nobody seems to be really clear for sure on what that means. But Daniel's purpose there is mainly to say this empire is going to be weak at the end, right? And it's going to crumble, and that's where that stone is going to strike. And so he talks about these four kingdoms, right? Babylonian, Medo-Persian, Greece, and Rome, these four kingdoms. And then he talks about the kingdom of God. The stone that Nebuchadnezzar saw in the vision represents the kingdom of God. Remember the parable that Jesus told? He would often say, to what shall we compare the kingdom of God? What is it like? It's like such and such. One of the parables he told about the kingdom of God was that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's the smallest of all the seeds. But when it grows, it becomes a tree. Right? And even the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. He was saying the kingdom of God starts out small. Right? Jesus comes, chooses his 12 disciples, most of them not terribly impressive guys. And he's essentially saying the kingdom of God is here with me and these guys. And people are probably thinking, that's, that's not what I thought the kingdom of God was going to be like. I was expecting something big and powerful and and overwhelming. Jesus is saying the same thing, right? This kingdom is going to grow. It it looks small now, but it's going to be great. He's saying the same thing that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his vision. The stone that is cut out is not a huge stone. But it is hurled at this image And Daniel says in verse 44, in the days of those kings, that is the kings of the the, um, Iron Empire, the Roman Empire, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, And that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. Remember earlier he said that that stone that struck the image, it became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So that stone is the kingdom of God. And when does he say the kingdom of God is going to be established? He says it is going to be established in the days of the king's of the Roman Empire. Now, for Nebuchadnezzar, all of this was almost certainly new information. Nebuchadnezzar had never heard of the kingdom of God. Nebuchadnezzar had no idea what Daniel was talking about. This was all new to him. But for Daniel, this was not new. For Daniel, he almost certainly saw in the vision given to King Nebuchadnezzar 
another promise of the fulfillment of the kingdom that God had been promising to his people for centuries. Remember, God had promised to David, the king of Israel, in 2 Samuel 7, that he would raise up from Daniel's line a king who would reign on the throne forever. Not just for a long time, but forever and ever. And then Isaiah was speaking of that kingdom and that king to come from David's line when he said those famous words, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. It was in fulfillment of those prophecies and of this vision that Luke told us in Luke chapter 2, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Who's that? One of the kings of Rome. A decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And it was in fulfillment of this vision and those prophecies that about 30 years later, that child who had grown into a man came on the scene and said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. All of what Isaiah had said, of what God had promised to David, all of what Nebuchadnezzar had seen in his vision, in his dream, was beginning to be fulfilled with the coming of Christ. He is the stone. It's his kingdom, the kingdom of God that he came to establish. So what does the vision reveal about this kingdom? First of all, we know that this kingdom is going to be set up by no human hand. This is not just some charismatic figure with a powerful army coming to set up a new empire. This is God establishing His kingdom. That's why the stone in the vision was cut out by no human hand. We know, as we said, that it will be set up in the days of the fourth kingdom of the Roman Empire, which is exactly when Jesus was born and came on the scene. We know that this kingdom will never be destroyed. Verse 44 says that the kingdom God will set up will never be destroyed. And he says at the end of verse 44, it shall stand forever. That's not true of any other kingdom. The Roman Empire lasted what seemed like forever. But it wasn't forever. It was a really, really long time. But it's not permanent. It came to an end. Not so this kingdom. It will never end. It will not be left to another people, Daniel tells us. There will be no succession. There will be no handing off this great empire to somebody else, to some other people. It's not like the Babylonian empire being overwhelmed by the Medo-Persians and so they sort of absorb what's left of Babylon and build upon it. No other kingdom will come after this one to take over from this one. It will not be left to another people. 
And this kingdom will bring the four previous kingdoms to an end. What other kingdom could that be? No other kingdom. It is the kingdom of God established by Jesus in His coming through His birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension, session. And He will come back one day to bring this kingdom to full consummation. And the Bible says that all those who have trusted in this King, who have repented at the hearing of this gospel, of this Lord, that they too will reign with Him forever and ever. Now, when Nebuchadnezzar heard the dream and the interpretation, he knew he was dealing with something the like of which he had never encountered before. That's why it says in verse 46, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel. You know, kings don't do that very often fell on his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Nebuchadnezzar recognizes that the God of Daniel is unlike other gods. Babylonians, they have their own God. Did he reveal Nebuchadnezzar's dream? No. He's not a real God. Not anything he could do. But Nebuchadnezzar recognizes that the God of Daniel is the God of gods. He's greater than all the other gods. He's the Lord of lords. And so Nebuchadnezzar responds right, with homage to Daniel and essentially with praise to God. How should we respond to what we have encountered here in Daniel chapter 2. Well, one thing we should do is remember who is in charge. Remember who is in charge. God reigns over all. God is the one who, as we saw, changes times and seasons. He's the one who removes kings and sets up kings. You may or may not like who's in charge at any given time as far as earthly powers go. Uh, you may not, may or may not like who's in the White House from one year to the next, or who's uh, sitting on the bench of the Supreme Court, or who's in Congress, or who's the governor, or who's the mayor, or whatever. But remember that God reigns over all. He's the one who puts those people in their positions of authority. And He can take it away whenever He sees fit. And so we don't have to be anxious, we don't have to be worried, we don't have to be concerned. We just have to remember who is really and truly in charge. Daniel remembered that when he was in Babylon. Surely we can remember that here. Second, read the words of the revealer of mysteries. Daniel chapter 2 reminds us that God can tell us things that we can't know in any other way. And He has told these things to us, not only in books like Daniel and Revelation, but throughout the entire Bible. We would not know the things that God tells us in His Word if He had not told us. 
So since he has told us, shouldn't we be eager to hear what he has to say? Shouldn't we be eager to receive the wisdom that he has given to us in his word? Don't neglect the revelation that God has given you in the Bible. Number three, reject the false notion that the kingdoms of this world are permanent and deserve our ultimate allegiance. The empires that Nebuchadnezzar saw crumble in his dream were empires that people probably never, ever thought would crumble. But they did. Every single one of them. You go even back further than what Daniel is talking about. You go back to the Egyptians. Looked like an invincible empire. It collapsed. Babylon looked like an invincible empire. It collapsed. The Medo-Persians collapsed. The Greeks. Alexander the Great took over the world in record-breaking time, so to speak. And his empire collapsed. The Romans dominated the scene for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. But where are they now? Empires come and go. Kings are raised up and put down. None of these are permanent and none of them deserve our ultimate allegiance. We should be good citizens. We should serve our kingdom, our country, just like Daniel served the Babylonians. But we must keep it in biblical perspective that none of this is ultimate. Only the kingdom of God and God himself are ultimate. And so finally, we must receive and worship the king whose kingdom will never end. The only thing that ultimately matters is how you respond to this king. Do you repent and believe in this king? Do you confess that this king is the king of kings and lord of lords? Do you confess Jesus as lord? And having confessed him as lord, you follow him. You trust Him. You heed His word. You do what He says. You pledge allegiance ultimately to Him. Again, as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. We get to know something of the future. Not only from this book of the Bible, but from the whole Bible. God does not leave us in doubt about how everything is going to turn out in the end. We know where everything is headed. We know who wins. And it's good news for everybody who trusts the king, everybody who trusts Jesus. The kingdom of God established at the first coming of Christ will one day cover the whole earth. And the glory of God will cover the dry land as the waters cover the sea, the Bible says. That kingdom will never come to an end. For all those who have confessed that king, that is good news indeed. Let's pray.